I want to read for you Psalm 95. I do not intend to do an exposition. I believe we're probably going to get that in the weeks to come. I just want to draw your attention to one section, primarily verse 11, but we'll read the whole psalm to get there. Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1, says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Now just notice, verse 11, God speaking, speaking of His people, they, the people of God, shall not enter my rest. That's God's rest. And so as a judgment upon that people, He said, you will not enter my rest. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word and bless our time together as we, we turn all over the scriptures and we see uh, the plan of redemption and the themes that you've laid out for us. Lord, I pray that we would be found a part of that faithful heritage of godly saints, of the people of God who have enjoyed your rest from the very beginning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the law from creation through the Mosaic economy and unto the time of Christ and the New Covenant. And this paragraph from our confession, chapter 19, verse 5, sums up the basic doctrine of the moral law of God. It says, the moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, that is, Christians as well as non-Christians, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation." And what the Bible teaches with regard to the moral law of God could be summarized this way. The moral law 
That is the Ten Commandments. The moral law is perpetually binding upon all men. The commandment with regard to the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, is a part of the moral law of God. Therefore, the fourth commandment with regard to the Sabbath day is perpetually binding upon all men. Now, in addition to the what we typically refer to as the perpetuity of the moral law, we also see in Scripture a redemptive historical theme that informs our doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. Now, let me define for you what I mean by redemptive historical. I use that phrase a lot. Redemptive history, redemptive historical. What does that mean? When I use that phrase, I'm talking about actual historical events that give shape and form to God's saving work in time and space. Or, I think you have it on the sermon guide there, events in history understood as they play a part in God's salvific plan in Christ. In other words, events in the Old Testament when you consider them redemptive historically, they go from just good narratives, good stories, good examples, to pieces of the puzzle that lead to the coming of Christ and salvation. So if you hear sermons that set forth men of old as merely moral examples without ever getting to Christ, that's not redemptive history. An example of this would be to consider the daughters of Lot. You remember the story. Lot escapes from Sodom. His daughters get him drunk. They both sleep with him two nights in a row. They both become pregnant by their father. Now we could say, application, don't do that. That would be moralistic preaching. Redemptive historical preaching would say, don't do that. But notice one of those offsprings' name was Moab. And from the line of the Moabites was Ruth, the Moabite who married Boaz, who was a part of the lineage of our Savior. So from that horrific sin, Christ comes into the world. You see, that's redemptive historical, tracing the line, the history of redemption in the actual events of history. So to say that there is a redemptive historical theme is to say that we can open up, look at the actual events of history as they are recorded in Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and from those events formulate a doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. In other words, we don't have to just rest on, well, the Ten Commandments says it and so we have to do it. We can actually build an entire theology from the entire Bible. And so that's what I want to begin to do tonight. And, and this will last for several weeks to come. So standing over the whole storyline of the Bible, incorporated in countless types and shadows of spiritual salvation, there are three major stories that encapsulate the entire history of redemption. Creation the exodus of the people of God and their, their entrance into the land of Canaan, and then the saving work of Christ in His earthly ministry. These three stories, again, give us types and shadows of spiritual salvation. And that may sound weird if you're paying attention to what I just said. Yes, the life, the work of Christ, not only is it the fulfillment of our salvation, but it actually, the events of His life, 
typify spiritual salvation. For example, he was dead and literally buried in the ground. We are buried with Christ in baptism. He was raised from the dead. We are raised to walk in newness of life. You see, it typifies, his life typifies spiritual salvation as well as achieving our salvation. Now what I want to do tonight is open up the first of those two stories, or the first two of those three, Exodus, or the creation in the Exodus and into Canaan. I want to show the pertinent themes from those stories, and then I'm just going to very quickly look at biblical language in the New Testament that takes those two stories, creation, Exodus, and uses it to point to salvation. I just want to show you this theme. Here's the pattern that we see, very simply. And I want you to listen and see if you can see what, what is here. Here's the pattern. God works. God rests. God gives His people rest. God gives His people a day of the week to rest in order to remember God's work and God's rest. The people celebrate God's rest. Okay? So that's it. God works. God rests. We could add in there the people work. God's people rest in light of God's rest. And so if the pattern holds true, again, not only do we have the perpetuity of the moral law, which is enough. God says, do it. You do it. That's enough. But in addition to that, we'll also have this redemptive historical theme and the saving work of Christ as foundational to our doctrine of the Christian Sabbath. The new covenant in Christ, far from abrogating the Sabbath, actually brings it closer to its fullest consummation. Now there are some who would say the Sabbath is abrogated because Christ has come. Christ is our Sabbath and therefore it's done. But even those people would say but there's still a, a Sabbath to come, a, an eternal Sabbath. We would agree with that last part. There is an eternal Sabbath. But even now, rather than doing away with the Sabbath, Christ has taken the Sabbath and made it more joyful than ever, more of a delight. We have more in which to rejoice in the Christian Sabbath. And this also would require that those who attempt to nullify the Christian Sabbath rather than living in Christian liberty, actually scorn or cast scorn and reproach on the work of Christ on the cross and in His resurrection. In other words, to despise... This is what I would put forth. This is my view. To despise the Christian Sabbath, not the Jewish Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, which observing the Jewish Sabbath would be despising the Christian Sabbath. To despise the Christian Sabbath is to despise the cross of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb. It is to cast scorn on those two events and say, they're really not worth honoring. So let's begin at creation. The pattern again, God's work, God's rest, man's work, man's rest in light of God's work. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We won't, we won't do a lot of turning, but we will do some. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The book of the Bible is a book about God. It's teaching us about what God has done. And by Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, 
and all the host of them. What was God doing? God created a place to be inhabited by mankind, the earth. We also know in chapter, from chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. You'll remember that garden was a, a, a sanctuary, a temple, where God would come and dwell with Adam, his, with His people, with His man. The whole point of creation in the beginning, remember, was to eventually bring man to what we see in Revelation 21 and 22. An earthwide garden temple, mountain city, where God and mankind would dwell in perfect harmony together. That was the point from the very beginning. Children, why did God make you and all things? Children, why did God make you and all things? For His own glory. God created the earth to be inhabited. He put on that earth a garden temple where He would dwell with His people for His own glory. This is God's work. He works to display His glory. Okay? Now where do we see God's rest? Genesis 2 and verse 2. On the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. Now, why did God rest? God was not tired. He was not fatigued. He didn't need a recharge or a reboot. But it says He rested. So we would ask then, what does it mean for God to rest? When we think of rest, we think of going home, laying down, taking a nap. But God does not have a head to lay down. God does not have eyes to close. He does not have a, a body to recline. Again, He doesn't need to recharge or reboot. What does it mean then when it says God rested? Well, the word rest does not mean take a nap. does not mean what we think of when we think of resting. The word rest means stop. God stopped. God ceased. Notice it says He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. In other words, what this verse is saying is when it came to the seventh day, God stopped working because His work was complete. God did not need six days to create. He took six days to create. He did not need to rest, but He took that day and rested. He stopped on that day. So there we see God's work, God's rest. He created His garden. He created His image bearer, Adam. He gave Adam responsibilities, namely mediate the rule of God on the earth, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion, and then God said, I'm done. And He rested from His work. He didn't stop working completely. He didn't stop doing anything. We're not open theists, so he didn't wind up the clock and then say, there you go, and just turn it loose. He rested from that kind of work. He rested from his works of creation, and he shifted into a new work, namely the work of providence, the work of upholding all things by the word of his power. And he, on that seventh day, enjoyed 
the creation that he had made. He says, it says that he looked at it, it was very good. He stopped and he simply delighted in himself and his own works. God works, God rests. Okay, then we come to man. Man, we know, is created in God's image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Now, we saw last week that being made in the image of God assumes law. It assumes imperatives. It assumes expectations by right of creation. We see in Romans 1, All people are without excuse... What can be known about God is clear to them, but they do not honor God or give thanks to God. What does that teach us except that every person, just by creation, is inexcusable when they don't honor Him and give thanksgiving to Him. All people, simply by the fact that they exist, know on their nature they should worship God. So it, it comes with a law, imperatives, being created in the image of God. God's law is stamped on His nature. And again, it's important to remember that Luke 3.38 refers to Adam as the Son of God. And that's a theme that you can trace throughout Scripture. Adam, the Son of God. What was man's work? Well, he was to work as God's vice-regent on behalf of God. We see in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, or birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is what we refer to as the dominion mandate. God creates Adam, his son. He gives his son a bride. And he says, Now, man and wife, your job is to populate the earth with a godly seed. Take dominion. Now compare that to Christ and the church and the commission go into all nations and make disciples. You see, this is a theme from the very beginning. Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So Adam was not originally in the garden. God took him and put him there in the garden, and his job was to work it and to keep it. And I've told you before that language, work and keep, is... Uh, very near to the same language that God uses when He describes the work of the priests in the temple. They were to work and keep the temple, to watch it or uh, watch it and guard the temple. So God worked. Now man in God's image is to work. He was to take care of the garden of God, to multiply a godly seed, to expand the garden sanctuary to fill the earth. In other words, what God started, Adam was now to come in on behalf of God as his image bearer and just carry out that work on behalf of God and fill the earth. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, we refer to those verses as the covenant of works. Eat Die, don't eat, live. That's the covenant of works. And a covenant always holds out the opportunity for something better. If you obey the covenant, you're not just going to stay where you are. You're actually going to get something better than what you have now. And so, completion of the task, don't eat, multiply, take dominion, fill the earth, would bring Adam to a greater state than where he originally was in the garden. So, on behalf of God, Adam, the Son of God, was to, the, to do the work of a prophet, a priest, and a king. 
Adam was to expand and multiply the godly seed, fill the earth. If he would succeed, he would take himself and all of his posterity into the ultimate and eternal enjoyment of God, state of glory, or we might call it the glory of God. He could bring humanity to the glory. That was Adam's work. And then we see man's rest in light of God's rest. Just like God, Adam was given a day of rest. Genesis 2-3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from His work that He had done in creation. God's seventh day was Adam's first full day. God blessed it. God made it holy, it says. He sanctified it. He set it apart for particular use unto Him. Now, when God takes a created thing, which is what the seventh day is, the Sabbath is a creature, a created thing. When God takes a created thing, blesses it, sanctifies it unto Himself, that always implies that man is to receive the blessing and then give to that thing the reverence of its consecration. God doesn't bless something and consecrate something and we just say, well, that's just God doing His own thing. That doesn't have anything to do with us. If He blesses it and He sanctifies it, He makes it holy, that's implications for us, not Him. So with regard to the appointed day of rest, the seventh day, Adam would now be able to join God in ceasing from his normal labors and enjoy God, take delight in the works of God. God sanctified it. Adam's job is to treat it as having been sanctified. Adam's job was to consider that a holy day. Now, how do we know this? The text doesn't say that. So how do we know that? In Mark 2, 27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made. Again, it is a created thing. It's a creature. Now, that word is not the word for creation, but it is the very same word that uh, John uses in John 1 where he says, Without Him was not anything made that was made. And we read that as the created realm. This, it is a creation word, or it can be used as a created word. The appointed day of rest was made at creation for the sake of man. Not Israel, man. Mankind. So God blessed the Sabbath day for man and sanctified it for man as a gift for man so that man could join God in his own rest. God rests and He invites His people come rest. So by the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, we see God completing His work of creation, centered around a garden temple, man as His image, with whom He would share intimate communion, resting from the specific act of creating in order to enjoy His work on the seventh day. We tend to read the sixth day because God created the apex of His creation, humanity, in His image, we tend to see that as the apex of all of God's actions. But really the apex would be the seventh day. The seventh day is the main event where God stops and He takes a day to enjoy Himself and His work. And God has also graciously given the man, Adam, 
the same pleasure of joining Him and resting from His works as prophet, priest, and king, and just enjoy God. One day, every seven, just enjoy me, Adam. Take a break. You're doing a good job. Here's a day. Enjoy my work, my rest. In light of the covenant of works, we know that what Adam had in the Garden of Eden was not the full, consummate end to all things. There was a greater state promised to him and his posterity if he could keep the terms of the covenant of works. In other words, that day of rest, one day in every seven, pointed to the eschatological rest, the eternal Sabbath. Adam was working toward the goal of eternal enjoyment of the glory of God. So there's the pattern. One in seven, work, then rest. Work, then rest. Every week, Adam was looking forward to that day when this pattern would be set aside and it would just be eternal rest. So the creation Sabbath looked back at God's creative works and enjoyed them, but also looked forward to the consummation when he would have eternal rest. Because God worked and rested, Adam was in covenant with God, and therefore Adam was blessed with the expectation of emulating God in his work-then-rest scheme. Can you see that? You see that? God worked. God rested. I can do it all over again if y'all didn't see it. Start. Okay. I'll take your giggles as affirmation. So then what happens? The fall. Adam sinned. Adam broke the covenant of works. He failed to attain to the glory that God had in store for him. He took all of his posterity with him. Sin entered the world through, or death entered the world through sin. Or, and what's Romans 5:12? Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. Therefore, death spread to all men because all sinned. In Adam, all men sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Adam. Everybody failed to attain that ultimate eschatological glory and Sabbath. But here's the good news. God didn't abandon His original intentions with humanity. It just means now redemption, reconciliation, and restoration are all required if man is going to enter that glory. And while the fall into sin does affect creation ordinances like dominion, marriage, work, and Sabbath, it does not make them obsolete. Men, we, weren't, we know from Genesis 9-6, even after the flood, men still bear the image of God. Men are still to take dominion, to marry, to work, and to rest. We don't say, well, because men fell, fell into sin, we're not supposed to get married anymore. No, we do get married. It's just a lot harder than it originally was. Genesis 3.15, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God promises restoration, but that restoration requires a plan for the fullness of time which leads to the next step of redemptive history, which is Canaan. So there's creation. God works, God rests. Man works, man rests. Man rests in light of God's work and rest. Now we come to Canaan, and the goal is that we see the same pattern. Canaan, the land promised to Abraham and his offspring. When I say Canaan tonight, just to keep in, in with a, a good, uh, keeping my C's, creation, 
Canaan, and the last one was, you could say, is Christ. When I say Canaan, I'm not just talking about the land. I'm referring to the entire period of time stemming from the exodus from Egypt all the way to the establishment of the people of God in the promised land during the time of Solomon signified by the building of the temple. So this time frame is a lot longer than the creation narrative, but it contains the same themes. The pattern again, God's work, God's rest, man's work, man's rest in light of God's work and rest. So let's see God's work. Now I said a minute ago, just because God rested from His creation work doesn't mean He stopped everything. He didn't transition into a state of idleness. Jesus says in John 5.17, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So God continued to work. He was just doing a different work. And He continues to work. When we look at the Exodus, we see the nation of Israel in bondage to an evil taskmaster, Pharaoh. Through the ten plagues, God makes an open display of the futility of the false gods of Egypt and brings His people out of that bondage and to Himself. Now listen to how the Scriptures describe this work. Numbers 33.4 tells us, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So the ten plagues were judgments upon the false gods of Israel by God. They come out of Egypt. Listen to the language of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Beginning in verse 1, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider He has thrown into the sea. Clearly, they're ascribing this work to God. God has done this. In verse 13 of that same chapter, I want you to listen to this language and keep in your mind works of salvation what we've already seen from creation, Exodus 15, 3, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God brought them out. God worked salvation. God redeemed them. God brought them to Himself, to His abode where He dwells. God works. In the Exodus, when we move to the, the early stages of what we could call the conquest of the land of Canaan, we see the same language. We could ask, who does the Holy Spirit say is working? Now, I didn't put slides up for these. I'm just going to read them very quickly. These are all from the book of Joshua. As they go into the promised land and are taking, are, are, are taking over the land... Joshua 6.16 And at the seventh time when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Joshua 8.18 Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Joshua 10.14 There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Joshua 10 29 and 30, Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna, and the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. Joshua 10, 42, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Joshua eleven six. 6, 
The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Joshua 21, 43, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers. It's very clear through these conquest times, God was working victory for His people. It was God doing it, not them. While this work saw great completion during the days of Joshua, because of the sin of the people, they would fall back into idolatry and slavery during the time of the judges. But then eventually through the reign of King David and then King Solomon, we finally see the pinnacle of God's bringing this people to Himself, which is again the construction of the temple of God in Jerusalem where God would dwell with His people. God worked for them and He brought them to Himself to that point, that place where God had made His name to dwell. They built the temple that God had designed, that God prescribed. When they completed it, God's glory came and filled the temple to dwell with His people. God worked that for them. Now, if God's work in this epoch, if you want to call it an epoch, this time period, not epic, epoch, if God's work in this epoch centers around working victory for His people, then we should see God doing something different when that work is finished. Namely, resting. After He gets done working, victory, now we're looking for rest. The construction and the completion of the temple of God, just like in Eden, signify the end of God's work. Listen to what David says in 1 Chronicles 28, verses 2 and 3. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building but God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Now, very quickly, I just want you to notice the, the parallels between house of rest, ark, and footstool. Keep that in your mind. Ark, footstool, house of rest. But notice, David wanted to build the, the temple. David wanted to bring completion to this work. But David was a man of war. And God says, no, I'm sorry. You're a man of war. You've shed blood. We know that there was political unrest until Solomon came to power. Solomon comes to power. He brings an end to all of that unrest during King David's reign. When you see King Solomon become king, he's just hacking people like one after another. That's first order of business. He's killing people. But by 1 Kings chapter 2, the kingdom is firmly established under Solomon. In Solomon's hand, it says... And so then Solomon builds the temple of the Lord and notice what he says at his prayer of dedication. 2 Chronicles 6.41 He says, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place and to the ark of your might. The ark, the symbol of God's presence in the temple was the sign of God's rest. He's saying, Lord, you've completed the work. Now come in and here is your place of rest. Notice how the rest of the Scriptures use this language. Isaiah 66, 1 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne. Notice the parallels here. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? The earth here is paralleled with the ark from 1 Chronicles 28, the place of rest, or the footstool. Where do you put your, or when do you put your feet up when you're resting? He says, the earth is my footstool. The earth is my place of rest. The earth and the temple both represent God's place of rest, God's dwelling place. That's why the temple looks so much like the garden, because they're themes, they're similar. Psalm 132, 7 and 8. Let us go to His dwelling place. That would have been the temple. Let us worship at His footstool. What's inside the temple? The Ark of the Covenant. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Again, dwelling place equals footstool in the temple. The ark is in the temple. The resting place is the ark in the temple. They're all swirling in themes. And I don't want to try to pull out that. I'm just showing you God rested in the temple. Psalm 132, 12 and 13. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His dwelling place. And then it quotes God, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell. I have desired it. Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, was His dwelling place. His resting place is His dwelling place is Zion. So we see from just the biblical language, God works a great salvation, drawing His people out in the Exodus, out from Egypt, brings them all the way, establishes them in the land of Canaan. They build the temple of Jerusalem. He brings His people to a place of communion with Himself and the enjoyment of what God has provided for them. When God was finished bringing His people to the place of His choosing, the garden-like temple. Remember the inside of the temple? Palm trees and lilies and gourds and things like that. He rested there. The temple was representative of the rest of God. God worked. God rested. Then we come to man. By this time, we're not looking at a single individual. We're looking at an entire nation, the nation of Israel. And Exodus 4.22 says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So Adam failed to do his job as God's son. So now the nation of Israel is given the title God's son, his firstborn son. The work of the nation of Israel looks different, obviously, than it did in Eden in some ways, but in other ways it looks the same. Israel had the task of their daily living, just like Adam. Here's your work, your common work, just do your work. Live in the land. But they also had the rule or the, the duty of expanding the dominion of God over the land of Canaan. That was their work of conquest. We see their common work addressed in the Ten Commandments. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 8, we read, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. That's your common work. Work your job, go to work, take care of your yard, mow the grass, fix the gutters, whatever. Do all your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant. Who's he talking to? He's addressing men. Or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, here's the reason, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we see the pattern, work, then rest, one day in seven. Why? What's the reason that this is the pattern? Because that's what God did. God worked, God rested. That was their common work. We also can read about their, their own work of conquest or their taking dominion of the promised land. Deuteronomy 9.5 says, Because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is driving them out from before you. In other words, God is using the nation of Israel as His representatives to carry out His judgments on these wicked nations. In Numbers 33, 51-53, we read these words, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. So we've already read about all that God did, but He also told them, you've got to do your own work too. Probably typical of our own sanctification. So the nation had work to do, work that continued the original creation mandates of labor and dominion. Do your own work and spread out. Take dominion over the promised land. God works, God rests, man works. Now we see man's rest in light of God's work. They were blessed with the rest of God. Not only did they have political or military rest, but they also had a specific day of the week given to them by God to rest and to enjoy God's work. First, we can read of their military or political rest. Joshua 21, 43 to 45 says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to their, give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there. Notice this language, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Solomon, coming after the period of the judges, says, Now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. So they had military rest. But they also had a day of rest. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And this is important. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And so when we get to chapter 5, we see the second giving of the Ten Commandments. The second giving of the moral law, Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do 
not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Then notice what he says. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, remember God worked and God rested and God gave you rest, so you keep this day to remember that. And so by the time we read, we get to the, the stage of Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, commemoration, the Sabbath day is given to commemorate creation and redemption from Egypt. He's not negating what he said in Exodus 20 when he said, For in six days the Lord your God created the heavens and the earth and rest on the seventh day. Therefore you shall work on six days and rest on seven. He's not getting rid of that. He's adding to it. And so now they have one day in seven to rest and enjoy God, following God's pattern of work in both creation and redemption. You follow me here? Creation and redemption. Honor the day in order to remember creation and redemption. Creation, redemption from Egypt, they come together at this point in redemptive history to form the basis and the foundation for their Sabbath observance. And so observance for them in the land of Canaan meant looking back at what God had done in creation, which you read through the Bible, read through the Psalms, they couldn't get away from creation. Everything they wrote was about creation. The clouds and the stars and God did this and God did that and God spoke this. Looking back at creation as well as looking back at the outstretched arm of God in the Exodus bringing them to the promised land. And so for them to break the Sabbath was to treat with contempt God's mighty working in creation and redemption and God's resting. It was a refusal of God's invitation to join Him in His rest. To honor the Sabbath was to honor the Lord and delight in God Himself as Creator and Redeemer. That's what it was. It wasn't just stop working because I need your attention. God invited them to rest and delight in Him. We also know that believers of the Old Covenant knew that the rest of the land of Canaan was not the end. In Hebrews eleven sixteen, 16, we read, They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. In other words, even when they got to the land of Canaan, the believers, when they got there, they knew this is not it. There's more to come. For the nation of Israel in the promised land, observance of the Sabbath meant looking back at God's powerful working in creation, back at God's work of redemption in the Exodus, but also looking forward to the coming eschatological rest in the glory of God. But what happened to Israel? Hosea 6-7 says, But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They sinned. 
broke the covenant, ejected from the land of promise, temple destroyed. Creation, Canaan, what's next? What is the next great epoch of redemptive history? I would say it's the coming of Christ, the second Adam, the true Israel, to carry out the tasks of prophet, priest, and king, to redeem his people from slavery, and to usher in a new creation, a new creative work. Now, I'm not going to go into that because that's going to be Austin's job for the next several weeks. But I just want to very quickly read through some New Testament scriptures and just show you the New Testament authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when they thought of creation and the Exodus, or the uh, creation in Canaan, and everything involved in those different epochs, they thought, they saw those events as pointing to salvation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, remember when God created, He spoke it into being? That's what He does in our hearts. He gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Not the new is coming. It is coming. But He says the new has already come. Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we look at the Canaan epic, just think about the, the promises and the exodus and the events of that. We, we read in Romans 4.13, The promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, Paul said, Oh, Abraham and the promised land, that wasn't it. Abraham was looking for the world. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when we get to the Passover, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Our Passover lamb is sacrificed in Christ. We're redeemed. Now do we go to Mount Sinai? Hebrews 12, 22 says, You have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see the themes. We're purchased, we're, we're ransomed by the Passover lamb, we're brought into the heavenly Jerusalem. We will someday be the inheritors of that promise of the whole world. The meek shall inherit the earth. We've been seeing that in Psalm 37. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He's talking about the church. A holy temple. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These texts could be doubled. I mean, you just, you just read the New Testament with this in your mind, creation and Canaan, and see all of the parallels. The point is this. Original creation was not the end. It pointed to a greater creation, a new creation. 
The work of God in the Exodus was not an end in itself. It pointed to a greater Exodus, the spiritual Exodus of God's people. In both of those stories, God works, God rests, God gives His people work, and God gives His people rest. And in both of those works, He gives His people a specific day of the week set aside to remember what God has done. He calls it the Sabbath day. When they observe their Sabbath rest, they look back to what God had done in creation and redemption, and they look forward to the eschatological rest in glory. And both of those events point to Christ's redemption of His people. They pointed to a greater reality. We are in that reality. We're living in it. And yet we're not in the eschatological rest yet. So we're in the already, but the not yet. That's where we are. We're living after the reality has come in Christ, but we're still looking to something else. So the question for us is, when we come to the New Testament, should we expect that the pattern of God in creation and Canaan would be abrogated or elevated? Would God say, forget all of that and we'll do something else? Or to be more specifically, would be, be more specific, would we expect that the one day in seven Sabbath rest of God's people would be abrogated, that means done away with, or elevated? That's the question. A more important question, moving forward, we would ask, is there any text, anything in the New Testament that would indicate that the pattern is still here? God has worked. God has rested. God gives His people work. But He gives His people a rest. And He gives His people a day of rest a day of the week where they rest, where they look back at God's work in creation, they look forward to the consummation. Is there anything in the New Testament that would lead us to believe that that's still happening, thus establishing a new covenant or a Christian Sabbath? That's the question. We believe that it does. Christ does not abrogate the Sabbath. He elevates it. In Mark 2.28, Jesus Himself says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't say the Son of Man has come to do away with it. He's Lord of it. That means He makes it better than it was. And we'll begin to look at those, that passage, the, the primary text next week. I want to close with this quote from Gerhardus Voss. I want you to think about this language and, and return to where we began the very first week. Do you... Well, first, how seriously does God take the fourth commandment? Secondly, do you take the fourth commandment as seriously as God takes the fourth commandment? I want to read to you a quote from a man, a man that I believe took the fourth commandment pretty seriously. Listen to what he says. The Sabbath is not only the most venerable... It is likewise the most living of all the sacramental realities of our religion. Sacrament meaning it's something that we participate in outwardly, that we do, that represents a spiritual reality. 
He says it's the most venerable, the most living of all sacramental realities of our religion. It has faithfully accompanied the people of God on their march through the ages. With regret, it must be admitted that the beauty and comfort of this thought seem to have impressed themselves more deeply upon the Jewish than upon the Christian consciousness. That shouldn't be said about us. How could we ever look back at a people who lived in shadows and types, cutting the throats of bulls and goats in the wilderness, and see that they had a better honor and respect for the work of creation and redemption than we do who live in the fullness of the reality of it?